we are uh, there. And I'm not apologizing anymore. We already this is the last week. Week 14, we've made it through three chapters. So it's been uh, quite the journey. It's a series that we've titled Truly Alive, which is really just Paul's challenging the Philippians to redefine their definitions of what it means to live. That living doesn't simply mean drawing breath, but then everything that we are, obedience and humility and unity, we'd be living for the glory of the God that has given us life. So this idea of living takes on a new definition. Now, the first two chapters, we spent really looking at the idea of call, Paul's call to this new church, this gathered group of Philippians, this young group of, church, this young group of believers. He's been calling them to obedience and humility and to have a united mission, to have the same heart and the same passion as they followed Christ together. And we really explored that in depth. Well, as we moved to chapter 3 a few weeks ago, Paul shifted from this call to the church to this kind of theological baseline that he put out there for the church to begin to build on. We explained a few weeks ago that false teaching or or bad theological teaching, if you will, was running rampant. And it was important to have a solid baseline. And there wasn't generational Christianity. You didn't have a grandmother that was a Christian. You didn't have a Bible that you could turn to and say, does this measure up against you? You didn't have a podcast you subscribe to. You had the apostles' teaching. And Paul was in prison in Philippi, and all they had were these letters. And so bad teaching was running, run, was running rampant. And so Paul uses a portion of this letter to lay a theological framework that says, listen, I want you to measure all incoming teaching up against these things. And for the past three weeks, we've really explored those things, what it means to know Christ, right? That personal, intimate relationship that we've been allowed to have in Christ, having a new identity and that being found in Christ was the second thing we explored. The fact that we're sinful and lost and that Christ rescues us and redeems us. Then last week, we talked about what it means to share in Christ, to participate in the promises that God says that we have and that we are in Jesus. Well, this week, we're going to move out of those four verses where we spent the past few weeks and step into this practical side of now beginning to live out this theology that Paul has been teaching about. Because theology, that fancy word, really just means a study of God and religious truth. So if, the, if our theology, our study of God, our knowledge of God, our study of truth, or our knowledge of truth remains purely cerebral, if it just remains academic, just remains something in my head, and never has to intersect with how I live, then for all practical purposes, it's worthless. Theology that remains purely academic is worthless. It's when our theology intersects with how we live where following Christ truly begins. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to take these things, this knowing Christ and being found in Christ and sharing in Christ, and he's going to challenge the church in Philippi, this gathered group of poor, broken, persecuted believers, and he's going to challenge them to begin to live this out, to move from the what's and the why's to the how's and the how-to's. And our faith in the process, our theology and our faith in the process are going to intersect. And it's that collision point that says, am I going to really live what I say I believe about God? And at that point in time, that collision point is where following Christ takes place. And so this morning, we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 3. So if you've got it, I want you to go ahead and turn there. And we're going to start in verse 12. And I'm going to read back a few verses because as I tell you every week, we've got to understand Scripture in its context. Okay? We can't just pick a few verses and look at them. We've got to understand how they're intricately connected to each other. And 12 through 15 is tied directly to 7 through 11 where we've been the past four weeks. So we're going to look at both of those sections where we're going to pay attention to those last three verses. So if you've got your Bible or there's one around you, you can use it. Flip to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and that's where we're going to be. So let's take a moment. Let's pray and ask God to teach us, and then we will uh, dive into it together. God, I love, I love, I love this church. I love the fact that you call us 
to be a little messy and a little bumpy and a little battered and a little bruised and that we're not perfect and that we don't pretend to be. But God, we all believe the fact that you desire us as a church to live differently in the world. And so God, I pray that as we read your word today, you would teach us um, to really begin to live out the things that we believe about you. Take just a moment where you're sitting, even if you're here for the first time, and and just just ask God to teach you something today. Just make it that simple. God, uh, teach me something this morning. Just something simple. Teach me something this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone behind you or beside you, in front of you, wherever. Just even if you don't know their name, just whisper, God, do, do something in their life. I always say be in the habit of praying for other people. Even if you think that's a little weird or hokey, just, just try it. Just pray for somebody else. Pray that God would move in them. God, we pray that as we open your word, you would teach us. Father, you are the one that reveals truth. And so we pray that as we look at it, Father, we would be reminded of that great truth. That you are the one who reveals to us that my words will always, always, always fall short. So God, teach us purely through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to backtrack for four verses just so you can hear them. Okay, I'm not going to explain them, but I want you to just hear them in your mind. Because 12 through 15 is going to come right on the heels of 7 through 11. And that 7 through 11 is that theological baseline that we explored for the past three weeks. And this is what it says. Paul's saying this. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's explained all that to the Philippians, and now this is what he says in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So if you're a new believer, gathered together in this little town of Philippi where there are no other believers, maybe there's 12 or 15 or 20 of you tops, you're the first Christian in your entire family, right? You're being persecuted every day. You wake up and you realize, today may be the day that I die for Jesus. You receive this letter from Paul. You're huddled together in someone's living room in their little house in their little adobe hut, and you're hearing these words. And Paul is explaining these deep theological truths about knowing Christ. I mean, being found in him, having the power of the resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. There's a part of you that's probably gathered there going, I don't even understand what this means. I mean, how am I ever going to get to this place where Paul is. I mean, he's saying all these things, yet I'm just trying to figure out how to live for Jesus right this moment to to not want to just cave in on my faith, right? There's this group of believers that's hearing all these things saying, how do we do this? And so Paul says, listen, I don't want you to freak out or to worry if you're not there yet. Because here's what I want you to understand. And he begins in this verse 12. He goes, I haven't obtained all this. I haven't been made perfect. So going, listen, if you're wrestling with these words and these things, I don't want you to worry because I haven't achieved them yet either. I'm not there. 
Whereas where most of us feel. We, we feel like we're at a place where we want to be farther in our maturity, farther along with, with our relationship with Christ. And, and we're not where we want to be. And we're wrestling with the small things. And we think we're never going to get there because we don't pay enough attention to where God has brought us from, right? How far that is to realize where we are. And so we're sitting there and we're gathering and we're saying, God, I'm not where I want to be. Well, this group of Philippians is the same way. Paul says, listen, I haven't got there either, right? But here's one thing that I do. Right? Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what ahead, what's ahead. This process is about growth and maturity. Paul is challenging these Philippians to grow and mature in their relationship with Christ. And it's a process. And if you remember, for those of you who were here seven weeks ago, we gave this process a name. It actually has a, a big theological name. And I told you, and I'll come to it in a second, I told you that the, the idea of salvation had two parts. The first part was the part that was done for us. It was something that Christ did on the cross and through the resurrection. And it's the word justification, big fancy word that means that through the cross and through the resurrection, we have been justified. Our sinfulness has been basically atoned for. And that through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a brand new life. We are justified, made holy, not perfect, set apart once for all. That's justification. The second part of salvation happens in us, all right? And it is the word sanctification. The word sanctification means the process of maturing or growing in Christ or the process of being made holy. The understanding of biblical holiness, as I keep mentioning, is not perfection but set-apartness. We're in the process of growing and maturing in Christ to be set apart for his purposes. It is an ongoing process that never ends. Our growth and maturity in Christ, that part of salvation, is an ongoing process where we're always growing and maturing. We are being sanctified. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are justified once, As you grow and mature in Christ, you are in the process of sanctification, and it is an ongoing process. That's what Paul's referring to here. He's referring to this part of sanctification. He's saying, listen, I haven't achieved it yet. I'm growing in my own relationship with Christ. Paul's saying, I haven't been made perfect yet. So don't panic if you're not there. That's okay. It's okay because we are growing into our relationships with Jesus. All right, this is this process of sanctification. He says, however, right in the middle of this, There is one thing that I do, all right? Forgetting what's behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on. Now, for those of you that are following closely and are really good at math, you're probably figuring out here that Paul, why a great writer, doesn't add really well because he says, the one thing I do, and then he goes on to say, forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. That's two things. Now, I'm no genius, but one plus one is two. So Paul must have missed something here. But I think what Paul's doing is he's pointing to the piece just beyond that, that pressing on. One thing I do, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. It's that pressing on that's got a few things tied up in it. And that's where I want to spend most of our time this morning, is that idea of pressing on. Because pressing on is wrapped up in a couple of things that have to work in concert with one another so that we can grow and mature in Christ. And the first piece is the piece that says forgetting what's behind. So if I'm going to grow, mature, be sanctified, step into my maturity in Christ, there's a few things that have to happen in my life as I press on. And one of them is I have to forget what is behind. Now Paul's talking about one thing when he talks about forgetting what's behind. He's talking about our past sinful nature, right? He's basically referring to our sinful past. So as I'm maturing and growing in Christ, I've got to be willing to forget my sinful past, forgetting what's behind. Now, your sinful past is not what you did when you were in college. It wasn't 25 years ago or 10 years ago or two years ago or what you did before you were in college or a couple of mistakes you made last year. Your sinful past actually is a combination of those things and the things you did two seconds ago. 
So the way you sat down next to that person, you thought, my gosh, they really smell. I wish they weren't here and I like that person, whatever. That sinfulness, right, combined with the things you did 20 years ago makes up your sinful past. So if you think that one isolated block of four years that you made a bunch of mistakes in is your sinful past, you're trying to get, out, get past it, you've got to realize that it's much bigger than that, okay? So a couple of things that we think about when we talk about forgetting what's behind. He's talking about forgetting our sinful past, okay? A couple of things. One, your past is not so distant and you are sinful. Those things are very much realities, okay? So let's keep that in mind. Let's think about this. Forgetting your sinful past does not mean pretending that things don't exist. Paul is not saying that in order for you to grow mature in Christ, you have to pretend that you never did anything wrong, right? Because the reality is your sinful past is very much real. It is very much a part of you and it is very not so distant. A couple of minutes ago, last night, the fight you got in with your husband or wife, the things that you said, the things that you did, the things you would never whisper to a soul, those things make up your sinful past, and it is very real. Pretending that they don't exist is not what Paul's talking about, all right? The first thing we've got to understand is Paul's saying, don't pretend they don't exist, and there are consequences for those things. The reality is there are consequences for your sinful past. Whether that was two minutes ago or 25 years ago, there are consequences that are very real. Maybe you got yourself in a mountain of debt because of some of the things you did, or maybe you made a connection with some kind of mob guy and took money from an unsavory character and all that, and you feel really bad about it, and now you meet Jesus and everything looks like it's going well in your life, and so you fall on your face and you say, God, I am so sorry, please forgive me. And Paul says, forget what's behind, and so you're like, sweet, I am no longer in debt. And you walk up to that mob guy and you're like, hey man, listen, here's the deal is that I met Jesus and he said everything, I could forget it. So we're good, right? Like we're all okay. He ain't going to say, no, we're not all okay. Come on, break your knuckles. The reality is there's consequences for our sin that we have to pay attention to. Forgetting does not mean pretending they don't exist. Acknowledge that you're sinful, your past is not so distant, and there are real consequences. Now, I will be the first to tell you, God sometimes works in a miraculous way and removes some of those consequences. But more often than not, we've got to deal with the consequences with our sinful past. So Paul's not saying forget and pretend it doesn't exist. What Paul is saying about uh, forgetting our sinful past is about leaving it behind, both in practice and in baggage. So forgetting our sinful past is actually a reference to kind of leaving behind both in practice and in baggage. What that means is this, practice. Now that you're a follower of Christ, that you've given your life to Jesus Christ, we are called to leave behind the practice of our sinful lives. The sinful nature that you were engaged in and that you were a part of, we are called to leave behind. It means that action, that lifestyle, that thing can no longer be a part of who you are. All right? That's what we talk about when we talk about leaving behind. Whatever you used to engage in, we have to walk away from it. Because those things, those sinful natures, those are no longer our master. We no longer have to give in to those things. But we have a new master in Christ. And so we leave the action of our sin behind. If we forget it, we leave it behind. It is no longer a part of me. That lie that you've lived for 15 years When we grow and mature in Christ, we have to leave it behind. It's no longer me. That's not define me. Those those words don't make up who I am. What people once knew me as, that's no longer who I am. But I can leave behind my sinful practice. I also have to leave behind the baggage. A lot of us, for a lot of us, this is where our struggle really is. As we've got these things that we've done that we've never told a soul about, or maybe a whole bunch of people know, who knows, but they're awful and we hate them and we've carried around a ton of guilt a ton of shame, 
There are things in our heart that maybe we've never whispered, that we wish weren't there, things that we did that hurt somebody else or people in our family, ways that we've wounded our own selves. Deep guilt and hurt and pain because of things that we've done, engaged in, thought, or been a part of. Paul says that as we mature and grow in Christ, we have to come to a place where we leave behind that baggage, meaning that you have been made new in Jesus Christ. You no longer have to carry those chains, that bondage, that lie. But here's the deal. The enemy wants you to carry it around. He wants you to remember who you were and who you'll never be. He wants to tell you that you'll never be any more than what everybody else says you were. He wants to tell someone like Paul that he'll never be any more anybody else than a, than a Christian killer, than someone that persecuted the church. Forgetting what's behind means that I leave behind, I don't pretend it doesn't exist, but I leave behind in practice and in the mental and guilt and shame baggage that comes with believing the lies and participating in the lies that I used to do. If I'm going to grow mature in Christ, I've got to walk away from that sinful side of me. And I've got to remember that I don't have to carry the guilt and shame. I've been renewed in Jesus. The third thing that forgetting uh, what's behind, what is behind means is this. It means remembering that God is a God of redemption. It goes right on the heels of that. To redeem means that God takes the broken and the shattered and the bruised and the disaster and the garbage and he turns it into something for his holy, set-apart purpose. That's what redemption means. It means that God takes what everybody else tosses out and he redeems it and turns it into something magnificent. Now, I've used this example many times when we've taken communion, but... This glass is uh, a piece of our communion ware, right? We're pretty fancy here at Divine. We spend high dollars on stuff. So this right here is our communion glass. Those of you who have taken communion with us know that when you come up, we fill this thing with juice and you dip your bread in it, and, and this is the exact glass that we use, all right? The, the picture of this is the picture of redemption, and here's why. We bought these glasses in this picture in, in Guatemala. All right, a few years ago when we were down there doing mission work, we bought them in Guatemala from a uh, glass-blowing factory. A Christian family owns a factory down there, and you think factory, think small. They own a shop um, with a little bit of a warehouse. And they go around and they collect trash glass from the dumps. Um, they go and collect broken beer bottles, old pieces of Coke bottles and glass and things and windows and stuff that people are going to throw away. They haul it back to their place, and they melt it all down. Trash. Take the, take the paper off, melt it all down, and they take it, and they turn it into something. So this glass that we use for communion was once all broken beer bottles and Coke glasses and things in a landfill somewhere in Guatemala. Yet this family decided to take this trash and now turn it into this, which we now use for one of the greatest kind of symbolic pieces of worship that we have as a Christian church, which is celebrating the fact that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead when we celebrate communion. This is, this is the picture of redemption. I mean, this is what God does in your life. This is what God does for us. He takes this broken piece of garbage, trash, sinful mess, and he redeems it into something amazing. Now, if you look closely at this glass, it's not perfect. There's all kinds of things in here. I mean, there's bubbles and there's flaws and you can see the place where the glass blower actually broke it off the bottom. I mean, this is a bumpy, bruisey piece of glass. Bruisey is a word, piece of glass. <laughs> when you look at my life, you know what you see? You see a mess. You see a bunch of flaws. You see a bunch of brokenness. You see a bunch of residue from my past sinful life, both two seconds ago and 25 years ago. But God, God redeems 
So you don't look at it and say, oh, all of a sudden I'm perfect now. But God takes that broken mess and he redeems it for his glory. Forgetting what's behind means that we don't pretend that our sinful nature doesn't exist and those things in our past aren't really there. But we, we walk away from them. We leave them behind. We forget them in terms of practice and baggage because God is a God of redemption. I've got to be willing to live that out. If God promises that I'm a new person in Christ, yet I look in the mirror and I see the same old thing and I hate it, I'm not living into the redemption that God has given me. I'm not living into my new identity. Instead, I'm living a lie and I'm not forgetting what was behind and stepping into who God says I am. There's a second piece in this that goes in concert with that idea of forgetting what's behind, and that's the straining towards what is ahead. Those two things paired together have to work in concert together in order for us to press on into our growth and maturity in Christ. So I've got this forgetting what's behind, and then as Paul says, I've got to strain towards what is ahead so that I can press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, I was telling Don this week uh, what direction we were going and what I was thinking about doing with Philippians, and he kind of turned my attention to Hebrews chapter 12, which is probably the the best way to look at this idea of straining. And so I'm going to read it to you in just a second. But that's the best way to really frame this idea of of straining ahead. Now, a lot of the New Testament kind of makes a metaphorical connection between the Christian life and some kind of sporting race event. So some type of race or event is always, well, not always, but oftentimes connected with our Christian lives. And there's probably a lot of reasons for this. main one being the Greeks would have been totally familiar with this idea of competing games, races. They were passionate about it. So it would have been something that resonated. It would have been an example. They'd have been like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But also because there's some connections between an athletic event and, uh, and the Christian life, the preparation and the struggle and the hurdles and the endurance and the perseverance and the running for a goal and all those things that make up a race or an, an event really are, are kind of metaphorically tied to the Christian life. And so they, it makes sense. Well, Hebrews kind of takes that kind of uh, pressing towards the goal, straining towards what's ahead, and, and it frame, he, our author, who we're not quite really sure who wrote the book of Hebrews, but our author of the book of Hebrews Uh, frames it in a really powerful way that I want you to hear. He says this in verse 12, Therefore, since we all are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who faces opposition from sinful men, so you will not grow weary and lose heart. The idea of straining ahead, pressing on towards a goal, this picture out of Philippians is a picture of of a movement of a race, of an athletic type event. And there's a few things that go into that that we have to understand. There's a preparation involved. If I'm going to run the Oklahoma City Marathon. Now, I know you're looking at me saying, look, you're not built like a runner. I told the first service I'm built like a swimmer, not a runner. They didn't get that. So I'm not really built like a swimmer either. So I sink like a stone, right? But I mean... I'm not built like a runner, and if I decide I'm going to go and run the Oklahoma City Marathon, which several of you are doing in here, I've already talked to you about it, I can't expect that day in May to wake up at 5.45, eat a stack of pancakes, have two cups of coffee, having never run even a mile or any distance larger than my bed to the refrigerator, and expect to actually go out, right, and run, finish, win, or even compete past about 16 steps in that race. Because there's a preparation that's needed. Anybody that's competed in any athletic event, whether you played soccer or croquet or golf or basketball or whether you did whatever, preparation is needed. It means what you put into your body makes a huge 
difference. Spiritually, it's exactly the same. What you put into your life makes a huge difference. The media that you put in, the people you surround yourself with, the things that you engage in make a difference, a huge difference. The preparation that's involved and the maturity and growth in Christ means I want to spend time with the God that will prepare me to endure this life to walk with him, to grow with him. I want to pray. I want to spend time in the word. I want to be in worship with other believers. I want to push myself. I want to get in concert with a small community that can help love me well. I want to be involved deeper. I want to prepare myself to press on. Most of us won't engage in this because this involves work. We want to show up on Sunday morning, have me say something that makes you feel really good or a little bit convicted, but just convicted enough to not actually have to change anything, walk out of these doors and say, now I'll make it to next week. That's not growing in maturity in Christ. It's just existing. Paul's saying there's a preparation that's needed in this sort of pressing on, in this straining, in this athletic movement that's a Christian life, what you put in makes a huge difference. If you continue to harbor resentment and anger and frustration towards someone, towards something, if you continue to allow that to be part of your life, you are not preparing yourself to live into the identity God has given you. There's a preparation that's needed. There's also a labor involved. Hebrews describes it as this, that let us run with perseverance. Let's throw off the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And in, in our book, in the Philippians, it says straining towards what's ahead. The idea of straining and running and perseverance kind of brings about this connotation of labor. Meaning that as we run this life, this Christian existence that we have, it's gonna be hard. There's gonna be labor involved. There's going to be hurdles. The great irony of the Christian life is this. The closer and more mature to Christ you come and the more mature you grow in your relationship with Christ, the more opposition the enemy will come at you with. The more he will try and derail you and render your life ineffective. The more you desire to grow and the more you move forward and the more you live into this process of sanctification, the more the enemy will try and destroy every ounce of hope that you have. Meaning the farther you get into the race, the more hurdles there are. Most of us, first sign of hurdles, we bail out and say, God's closing doors. Because we don't want to have to deal with the labor and struggle involved. Paul says, listen, I forget what's behind and I strain. Think about that idea of straining, pushing, pulling, working at it towards what's ahead. This life following Christ will require straining effort and labor for you to fight the tendencies that the enemy will put in your life. And then finally, and I'm doing this quickly so we can be done. And finally, we see this idea of there's a goal involved. All through this sort of movement of metaphorical connections to the Christian life and athletic events, there's always a goal involved. Paul calls it the goal to win the prize, the goal in which we've been called heavenward in Christ Jesus. Hebrew calls it fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The question that brings about in my mind really is, is what am I running for? I mean, really, what am I laboring for? What am I straining for? Am I straining for respect in this world, for financial gain, for security, for something, for things to acquire? Am I pushing for this? Is this what I'm laboring and running for, really? What is my prize? What is my goal? The Hebrews verse tells us that not only is Jesus himself the prize, 
But he's the author and perfecter of our faith, meaning he is the one that gives strength for us to even run in the first place. He is both the one that provides the strength and the one that we run for. He is the goal, the prize, and the energy by which we do it all. If you are weary and tired and worn out and broken, there is a reason. What are you running for? Are you aimlessly beating your arms in the air, running like a maniac in the wind, wondering why your life feels empty and meaningless and broken? And showing up here on Sunday morning sometimes is just a mask and a facade to hide what's really happening in your life. When our ideas about God intersect with the call to live differently, things get messy. This is that radical collision. God, I believe that you're real. I believe that you gave me new life through Jesus Christ. If those things are real and true, and I really believe them, then it's time to actually live them. Forgetting what's behind, realizing that I'm sinful, but I don't have to carry the baggage and the practice that that means, and that you are a God of redemption. And that as I run, I prepare and I fill my life with things that are going to be helpful in my run with and for you. And I know labor's going to come, and that's okay because I'm running for a goal that matters. What are you running for? As we close our time in worship this morning, I encourage you to ask yourself that question, God, what am I running for? What am I holding to? The Hebrew says we throw off all that sin and anything it hinders that so easily entangles. What is it that's wrapped around your legs, your life, your heart, your mind, that's making running, that's making running difficult or almost non-existent? Let's pray.